The reading from, for today's sermon will come from Joel chapter 3. I'll be reading the entire chapter to the end of the book. Hear now God's holy word. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far away from their own border. Behold, I will stir, stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me as we come to this passage? Father God, again we give you praise for the privilege of 
being in your presence, for the honor of coming before you this morning to render worship to you, to sing your praises, and to hear from your holy word. So, Father, would you help us? Would you give your Holy Spirit to us to help us understand, to illuminate the meaning of your words to us this morning, to give us confidence in them, and to continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds according to the power of your living and active word. And so, Father, these things we pray for the sake of your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll remember back with me to our study of the book of Acts not too long ago, and remember that story, that time in Acts chapter 17, where Paul was in Athens, remember preaching the gospel and defending the word of God and proclaiming God's truth from God's word to all of those philosophers and scholars, all the intellectual erudites there at the Areopagus in Athens, he He stood in the midst of all of those people who were full of pride, who were full of worldly wisdom, who mocked Paul and who scoffed at Paul, who called Paul a babbler when he proclaimed the word of God. And Paul, with no intimidation at all, proclaimed with courage and with boldness and with urgency this message. He said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the whole world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all men by raising that appointed one from the dead, referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. Paul stood there in Athens amongst the world's most elite intellectual minds and said for all of your study for all of your investigation for all of your speculation all your philosophy and worldly wisdom here's the one thing you have no idea about but that you need to know there's coming a day fixed by the sovereign purpose and mind of God on which he will judge the whole world through Jesus Christ whom he has raised from the dead. We've been studying this book of Joel for several weeks together. And for all that we've learned about how we can trust God and call out to God and rest in God during times of trial and affliction and tribulation in our lives in this world like Judah was going through because of that horrible locust plague that absolutely devastated their land. We've learned a lot about that. When we go through things, here's how we also can find rest and refuge in God. But the ultimate message that God is revealing here in this book, this book of Joel, is the message that looks past our earthly struggles and sufferings here during the brief time that we spend in our lives on this earth. The ultimate message is the one that looks beyond those things and to that coming day that God has fixed on which he will judge the whole world in righteousness when Jesus Christ, who died and was raised, returns. Ultimately and eternally, both in terms of our own lives, how we live in this world, and especially in terms of the lives of all of the people around us who do not put their hope in Christ, 
Nothing matters more than the reality that there's coming a day when Christ will return and with him all the judgment of God, right? Nothing matters more than that, does it? As we come into the final chapter here, chapter 3 of the book of Joel, we have to remember that everything that was going on in Joel's day, both in terms of that, that terrible plague of locusts that ravaged the whole land of Judah, and in terms of God's very merciful, very abundant, very lavish restoration of the crops and the fields and the oil and the wine after the locust plague, all of that was in the sovereign design and purpose of God in those historical things that actually went on. All of that was a divine foreshadowing of something far greater, a far greater judgment that was going to come out, pouring out from God, that will still come pouring out from God, and a far greater, a far more abundant, a far more lavish redemption that God would be bringing before that coming day of his judgment through the outpouring of his spirit, like we saw last week, right? To produce a great supernatural new covenant harvest of spiritual life and salvation and sanctification and holiness. That's what we saw last week at the end of chapter 2, and that emphasis on that, that outpouring of God's Spirit in advance of the coming day of God's judgments leads now straight into the final message of the book of Joel, here in chapter 3, where God reveals that on that coming day of his judgment, he is going to do nothing less than call all of the nations of all of the world for all of history into account and deal with them severely in his justice. So God is revealing here that during this time of the outpouring of his spirit, during this time of the new covenant, where God is causing new spirits to be created by his power within people from every tribe and tongue and nation, like we saw last week, as they call out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, during this time where God is working to redeem people out of the world, he is also working to call the nations into account for their rebellion against him and for their rejection of his truth and for their oppression of his people. And all of that, God's merciful salvation to people, bringing them out of the nations, and his righteous judgment that will come on the nations, all of that is going to lead up to and culminate in that great coming day of Jesus' return. When he, as the king of heaven, will consume this present world in the wrath of God and make all things new. That's what we need to have in our focus always. That's what we need to be ready for. That's what we need to be proclaiming, like Paul was proclaiming to the people of Athens, is the thing that matters most in their lives. It's not how the stock market performs. It's not whatever's going on with Chinese balloons up in the sky over Montana. It's that Jesus is coming, and with him, all of the fullness of the judgment of God. So Joel chapter 3 today falls out into three main sections, three main messages, three main emphases, as the holy God who is the judge of all the earth, right? He says that of himself in Genesis chapter 18. He pronounces judgment here against the wicked nations of the earth, and that includes, as we'll see, some, 
specific nations that existed in Joel's own day that God names by name here in chapter 3, but it's not limited to those several historical people groups that are named here. It, 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 it's a pronouncement of judgment ultimately against all of the world's nations who will all be gathered before the sovereign holy Lord of the heavens and the earth and all be brought into account according to his sovereign rule and righteousness. That word all appears all throughout chapter 3 here. And so in chapter 3, the Lord speaks about these three things. He speaks about his decision against the nations. He speaks about the coming destruction of the nations according to his decision. And finally, he speaks about a great deliverance that he mercifully grants to those who come calling upon his name for salvation, being filled with his spirit, becoming citizens of a new nation, a, an eternal nation through faith in him. Just like Peter says, that's what he says, we are right through faith in Christ in the new covenant era of the outpouring of God's spirit. You are a chosen race, chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation consecrated unto God, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So, chapter 3 concerns God's decision, the destruction of the nations, and God's deliverance of his people out of the darkness of this world and into this marvelous light of his everlasting kingdom, which is his chosen nation, according to the New Testament. Or if you want to alliterate it a different way, you could say it this way, that the message of Joel 3 consists of God's verdict against the nations, his vengeance according to that verdict, and his vindication of his people, of his own holiness as the sovereign ruler of all the earth. So as we take those three emphases in today, what we're going to see is how hugely important it is to understand God this way, and to understand the world this way, and to understand history this way, according to this paradigm and through this lens that God provides here. So number one, in the opening verses here of Joel chapter 3, the Almighty God, the Holy God, who is the Lord of all of creation, sits as the judge of the whole world, the whole earth, and pronounces his sovereign decision, his sovereign verdict against the nations of the world. Here's what they're guilty of. And the language of verse 1, where he says, in those days, and at that time, that's connecting everything that he's about to say to what he already said at the end of chapter 2, right? About the outpouring of his spirit, remember from last week? And we learned last week how the time of the outpouring of his spirit has to do with the time that we're living in now. These last days, the final chapter of God's plan. During the new covenant in Christ's blood as we await his return. This is when he's pouring out his spirit. So God is saying now in chapter 3 that as he's pouring out his spirit on all flesh in new covenant redemption. He will also, verse 2, gather all the nations. All the nations. And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now the name Jehoshaphat in Hebrew means God judges that's just what the word means 
And in the context here of Joel chapter 3, it's not the name of a single specific geographical location. It's a reference, as we're going to see, to the whole world as God gathers all of the nations together in, in, in the whole world, which he's going to refer to as this valley of his judgments, all of the nations throughout history, in order to enter into judgment with them. That's what is at stake here. And in verse 2, God tells us why. He prosecutes his case against the nations. He says, I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they, the nations, have scattered my people among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and drunkards. So he makes three specific charges against the nations. This is what they're guilty of. This is what they're being judged for by God because of what they have done to God's people. They've scattered God's people, they've divided the land of God's people, and they have cast lots for God's people. They've treated God's people basically like, like chattel, like property to be traded in exchange for sinful, worldly, fleshly vices. And those three charges all go together, they're all interwoven together as expressions of the unbelieving world's Wicked rebellion against God himself. God says what you're doing, just like, just like Jesus said to Paul, as you persecute my church, you're persecuting me, this is what God is saying to all the nations. As you oppress my people, so you assault me, and I will not let it stand, God is saying in chapter 3. So he's sitting as a judge in a courtroom, and he's bringing a verdict against the nations of the world. Now, in a normal courtroom where a judge presides over a trial, over a case, civil or criminal, that judge sits as, as an impartial judge, right? That judge needs to be somebody who has no personal stake in the particular case that they're adjudicating, right? They're upholding justice according to the law. Ordinarily, for a human judge, there can't be anything personal at stake in the case that they're presiding over. If, if there is, because in their humanness, they can be biased. So if there is something personal, right? Say, say a judge is presiding over the case against a, a person who has been convicted of murdering the judge's own child. If the judge has something personal like that at stake, they have to recuse themselves from that trial in a human sense because in their humanness and finiteness, they would be prone to bias. And so there has to be an impartial judge to preside. But see, God is never prone to inappropriate bias, right? And God, who is eternal, who is almighty, who is all-knowing, who is holy, who is righteous is not only never inappropriately biased, he is and never can be impartial, can he? It's always personal with God, right? God is never a disinterested party when it comes to anything that's going on in his creation, and especially when it comes to his chosen people. It always has to do with God's holiness. 
That's the particular focus here in Joel chapter 3. God himself is pronouncing judgment against the nations of the world specifically for their mistreatment of his own chosen nation of people. They belong to him and no one else. No other nation in the world, no other nation in history has any right to do whatever they want with God's people, with God's nation, with God's own possession. And so the first charge that God brings at the end of verse 2 is that the nations of the world have scattered his people among the nations. And that charge is rooted, of course, in the reality of everything that God had done and has done to gather his people, his chosen people, together into one nation. In the Old Testament, that's what God was doing. In the New Covenant, that's what God is doing. He's gathering people from every earthly nation and bringing us together as that holy nation through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's what he was doing with with the specific earthly physical nation of Israel also in the Old Testament, right? The eternal sovereign God was the one who called Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and travel west to a land that he'd never seen before. It, it was God who did that, it, and it was God who miraculously granted Abram and his elderly barren wife a child. And it was God who sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau in, in spite of all of Jacob's treachery and all human conventions, right? It was God who then wrestled with Jacob and changed his name to Israel. It was God who providentially brought Jacob's offspring to the land of Egypt in spite of all of their treachery against their little brother Joseph. It was God who raised Joseph up to become the right hand of Pharaoh so that he could graciously provide food and home for his brothers when they came down looking for grain. It was God whose mighty right hand broke the 400-year bondage of his people in Egypt and miraculously led them out and across the Red Sea and through the wilderness and to Mount Sinai where he appeared to Moses and manifested all of his majesty and all of his might and all of his mercy and gave them the law and made them a nation of his own special possession. God did all that. God brought them across the Jordan. God brought them into the promised land. God made the walls of Jericho fall. God made the sun stand still in the sky so that they could inherit and possess this land that he had promised them. God drove the Canaanites out. God subdued the Philistines. God gathered them. They didn't do any of that for themselves. No one else did it for them. For centuries, God worked in spite of their ungrateful hearts and their sin, their idolatry, their failures. God treated them as the apple of his eye, like he said in Deuteronomy 32. Again and again and again, he gathered them from the land of Ur, from captivity, from wandering, from exile, from their own idolatry, from their own sin. He, he chose them. He pulled them together. He gathered them as his chosen people, his possession, his nation, his heritage. So he's not about to let anyone get away, see, with, with scattering what he has gathered. But that's exactly what the nations of the earth were doing. Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and other smaller nations and people groups, they were persecuting Israel, they were enslaving Israel, they were exiling Israel, they were destroying Israel. 
And God says, for that, I will hold you to account for scattering my people. And then secondly, God extends the prosecution's case, not just to what's been done to the people, but also to the land that God's given them. Look at there at the end of verse 2. The nations haven't just scattered his people, they've also divided up my land, God says. Notice he doesn't just call it Israel's land, right? It's his land, it's God's land. Not just because he was the one who promised it to Israel and gave it to them, but ultimately because, of course, God's the one who created it in the first place, right? God's the one who, who, who spoke the land into existence from nothing. So by rights of creation, it's his land. And he's the one who has the ultimate authority as the creator to give it to whoever he wants to give it to. He chose to give it to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, God said in the book of Joshua. Because he said so. Because he created it all. Because he has the rights. But the nations didn't see it that way, right? Down in verse 19 here of Joel 3, God is speaking judgment against the nations of Egypt and Edom for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. They've defiled the land with the blood of God's people. And historically, the Edomites especially were guilty of trying to take the land from Israel and parcel it out for themselves. They stole from God. So they've scattered God's people. They've divided God's land. Thirdly, in verse 3, God indicts the nations for casting lots for his people. Essentially treating them like chattel. Treating image-bearing human beings like property. Instead of treating them with dignity as image-bearers. They were using God's people as commodities to be traded for worldly goods and services, often very, very wicked ones, like prostitution. That's the kind of thing that would happen after a battle. Enemy nation would come and defeat another nation, and any survivors were enslaved and then traded in the marketplace, like property. And I don't need to tell you that the same thing happens still today, right? In the darkness of this wicked world. People are enslaved. People are treated like property. Even in our nation, human infants in the womb are just treated like genetic material to be disposed of at will. And not as the image-bearing humans that they are. God hates it. Slaves would be sold in Old Testament times, including Israelite people. They would be sold as laborers to do work like animals would be sold in the marketplace. And slaves could be sold and are still sold in many places in the world today for any and every other kind of wicked reason imaginable in order to gratify every kind of wicked, fleshly, sinful lust and desire that exists in the dark heart of man. Sex trafficking and everything else that you can think of. And it should go without saying that God who is holy and God who is almighty, God who is the maker of heaven and earth and the sovereign ruler over all creation, he absolutely despises it whenever 
his own image-bearing creation is treated like property to be used for the gratification of, of human desires, especially grotesquely sinful human desires, to be bought and sold, to be traded for things of infinitely less value, to be discarded of, to be disposed of callously and cavalierly like, like, like unwanted garbage or junk in a salvage yard. And it goes on all the time. There's nothing new under the sun. And it incites the wrath of God in whose image every single human being is fashioned. It went on in the Old Testament as the nations did these kinds of things, perpetrated these kinds of crimes against the people that God had called and gathered as his own possession among the nations. So this is God's case against the nations. They've scattered the people that God has sovereignly gathered. They've divided up the land that God gave to his people. They've enslaved his people. They've treated them as commodities for the sake of their own wicked desires. And in doing that, of course, the ultimate sin that they've committed is against God himself. He's the one who the nations have defied and shaken their fists at. They had disregarded and disrespected and flouted God's sovereign, holy lordship and honor. And so they have provoked his holy wrath and they have invited his righteous judgments. In verses 4 through 8, speaking again as the judge in the courtroom, God brings in exhibits. Exhibit A, exhibit B, right? Examples to make his case against the nations. He, he calls them out by name. He mentions specific ones like Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia. These were some of Israel's most Notorious enemies, the Philistines, think David and Goliath, think Samson and Delilah. The Philistines were an immensely powerful and wealthy group of people who lived in the land of Canaan. They were arrogant and they were violent in their wickedness. They were bloodthirsty people. In Ezekiel 25, God condemns the Philistines for their never-ending enmity against Israel specifically. They had a specific thing with persecuting this one people group more than any other against God's people. He mentions Tyre and Sidon. Those were the, the, the chief predominant cities among the Phoenician people. The Phoenicians were the ones who lived along the coast and they were a seafaring nation, right? They, they had immense wealth that they made through a fishing industry and through shipping trades to other nations. And in all their wealth and in all their success and prominence, the Phoenicians became brazenly arrogant against God. Tyre even declared itself a god in Ezekiel chapter 28 which incited the wrath of the one true God who said he would bring them down. So the Phoenicians are known for their arrogance. The Philistines are known for their violence, all of which was regularly poured out specifically and especially against God's people Israel in all kinds of ways throughout their history. And so now God is taking them to task. He asks in verse 4, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? They thought of themselves as the big, tough, strong bullies in the playground that nobody else could dominate, that nobody else could challenge. And God is saying, who exactly do you think you are? 
to them. And he's saying, who exactly do you think I am to them? Who do you think you're dealing with here, God is saying. They've been messing with and persecuting and oppressing the people of God for centuries. And for all of their strength and all of their pride and all that they think that they're invulnerable to anybody challenging them, they're basically, God is saying, like a, like a teeny tiny irritating little mosquito on his almighty arm. And he's getting ready to just flick them off, squash them like the bug that they are. He asks them there in verse 4, are you, are you paying me back for something? Because, again, in all their pride and in all their power and all their, their arrogant exploits in the world, the thing they were most interested in doing was persecuting Israel specifically. They like to pick on everybody, but especially they like to pick on this poor kid, God's kid, more than any other kid, more than any other nation. You got some problem with me? You got some problem with my kid? God's saying, uh-oh, that's not good, right? And if God, God says, if you do, then I've got a problem with you. If all your arrogance and violence is some sort of payback for some issue you have with me, God says, then I'm going to pay you back. If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly. And speedily. This isn't going to go well for them, challenging God. That's the point, right? The point is, it, it doesn't matter who you are in this world. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how big you talk. You do not want holy, almighty God setting his sights on you like this. And that goes for individuals. It goes for kings and rulers. It goes for entire countries and nations. God lays out the evidence against them. They've, they've plundered riches from Israel, verse 5. They've sold the people of Judah like property into slavery, verse 6. And so God says in verses 7 and 8, an eye for an eye. It's going to be done to you what, what you have done to my people. The punishment is going to fit the crimes. Because for all their arrogance, God is the judge of the whole earth. For all their violence, for all their power, God is the almighty God of creation. He's in charge. And this is what they've done in all of their hatred of him, in all of their arrogance, in all of their wickedness, in all of their violence. People look at the Old Testament and they say, I can't believe any of that because this God would, would do these horrible things to the poor Canaanites. And all that means is that people who would make a charge like that against God have no idea how holy he is and how horrific their crimes against him were and how worthy they are of his judgments. Because they will not acknowledge the holiness of God. So, God who is the holy judge of the whole earth is in charge. And whether these nations want to admit it or not, they're going to answer to him. And historically, the ones he names by name here did. These most prominent and wealthy people groups, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, who thought of themselves as just, they're, they're going to be eternal. Tyre called itself a god. I can't, I can't be killed. I can't be destroyed. They were feared over the whole earth. They, 
Right now, they simply don't exist anymore, and they haven't for a long, long time because God didn't just pronounce the verdict. He executed vengeance. He, he, he poured out the judgment that he said he would. Just for one example, the city of Tyre. It, it, there was a coastal city, and then out in the water, there was a big island where the main part of the city was built, and nobody could get out there. And so they thought of themselves as indomitable. They had defenses and walls. They're untouchable, they thought, until Alexander the Great showed up in 322 B.C. and destroyed the city on the coast and used the rubble to build a ramp out to the island and absolutely eviscerated them. They thought they were impervious. He decimated that city. He did exactly what God said would happen here and enslaved 30,000 of the inhabitants and sold them to the Israelites. Now that rock is just used for casting fishing nets over. All in fulfillment of God's words of vengeance here in Joel chapter 3. And so this theme of vengeance now becomes the dominant focus in verses 9 through 16. God has pronounced the verdict. He's made the case. Here's the, here's the sentencing. And in his mind's eye, Joel returns now to this, this valley of Jehoshaphat, as he calls it, a, the valley of God's judgment, where God says he's going to assemble not just these few nations, not just the Philistines and the Phoenicians of Joel's day, but he's He's, he's envisioning this coming day where God will gather all nations to answer to him who is the judge of all the earth. And God says to Joel in verse 9, here's what you need to proclaim to all the nations. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. That's a really good translation. It doesn't just say prepare for war. If your version says prepare for war right in the margin there, the word consecrate, because that's specifically the word that he uses here, like consecrate a feast in the temple, because it's going to be holy. It won't be like any other meal. It will be, it will be devoted to the service of God. God is saying, he's not just inviting the nations to a fight. He's announcing to the nations that he is setting them aside for a holy war that he himself is going to wage against them. And as the nations of the world gather, they have to summon people from every quarter. Right? They can't just bring their soldiers, in verse 9. They also have to get the farmers to come and bring their plows and their sickles. They have to bring the weak people too, the children and and the invalid, you, you're going to have to fight because God's summoning us to battle. And as they all come before him, and as all of the people of all of the nations set themselves against God, which they are still doing today, God himself, in verse 11, assembles his own warriors, who it says will be brought down against all of the nations of the world. Down from where? Think about Revelation 19. Down from heaven. He is talking about angelic warriors. Think about that scene of the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. Revelation 19. The risen, enthroned, sovereign Lord Jesus returns on a white horse leading all of the hosts of heaven 
in order to tread the nations in the winepress of God's holy wrath, it says in Revelation 19, echoing, echoing Joel's words here as he treats this, this global judgment of the nations as a harvest. God is going to put in his sickle, and God is going to stomp them like grapes, and God is going to crush them all. Verse 14, Joel sees multitudes of multitudes. It's a word of multiplication. Multitudes of multitudes of earthly nations and wars. An uncountable assembly all gathered together to face off against God in what's called in verse 14 now the valley of decision. That's where the sermon title comes from, by the way, because this word decision here in verse 14 means in this context the verdict that God has rendered against all of the nations of the earth. So here they are all in the valley of verdict. God has summoned them together, all of them, for the divine sentencing that is going to come by way of this holy war that God is going to wage against the nations on this great and terrible day of the Lord when Jesus returns and all the warriors of heaven with him. And so here now, through the prophet Joel, God is extending, see, this sentencing of the nations, this verdict against those that have harmed his chosen people. He's extending it beyond those specific nations in Old Testament times that Joel was familiar with like the Philistines and the Phoenicians. He's extending it to every nation of men from everywhere on the earth, all throughout history, which have shaken their collective fist at the Almighty and used their power and influence to divide and to oppress and to persecute the chosen people of God and to consign for themselves the earth that God has made and use it for their own wicked and sinful ends. And so here, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus and the coming of the new covenant, at least 400 years before Jesus came, probably more like seven or 800 years before Jesus came here, God is indicting human wickedness universally. God is indicting the world's rebellion against him, which was manifest in these kinds of ways against God's own chosen nation, of Israel in the Old Testament and is still manifested, see, in the same kinds of ways. Against God, against his anointed Jesus Christ, and against all of those who in Christ are the true offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3, the Israel of God, Galatians 6, verse 16, who in Christ are God's true chosen race and holy nation and people for his own possession, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. That's what we are. We're the gathered ones. We're the nation. We're the, we're the offspring of Abraham. And the nations have always raged against God, Psalm 2 says. And in their rage against God, they always rage against God's people. And they are still. That's what they did in the Old Testament. It's what they still do in the New Covenant against what Paul calls the Israel of God. Against all who are in Christ. The world hates us. And the world hates us because the world hates Him. They hate God. And so Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. 
If they hated me, you can be sure they'll hate you. And every kind of human wickedness, including all false teaching, all worldly wisdom that would enslave and darken and blind the minds of people in spiritual darkness, all persecution of God's people, and all of the violence and wickedness and immorality in this world, every form of inhumane oppression and persecution against every single image-bearing person on the earth that is perpetrated by any and every society and country and nation and government throughout history. Every form of arrogance and pride that is lifted up against God, all of it will be brought into account before Him who is the almighty, holy, sovereign judge of the whole earth and none will stand won't matter how many weapons, won't matter how many people, won't matter how big and mighty and powerful. God will flick them away like an annoying insect on the day of his judgment. So none of the fish shaking or saber rattling against God and his anointed is going to matter at all. When God summons everyone who rejects him and stands against him, he pulls them all into the valley of verdict and proclaims holy war against them. None will stand. Every single person in the whole world, every single government, all the nations, assembling with all their might, with every weapon known to man, none of them will stand any chance against the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who defeated Satan himself. He's the one who defeated death itself. And when he returns, leading all of the angels of heaven, which is a lot more than all of the people in this world, he will make war against the nations. Tyre and Sidon, Philistia, Phoenicia, they were no match for God in the Old Testament. They're just, nobody has any memory of them anymore. And they were among the smaller of the enemy nations that God crushed, right? Compared to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, it was no problem for God to dethrone them as well. And so... None of the assembled nations of the world in all their self-sufficiency and all their pride with all their collected wealth and power, they will not be a match for him. He is the almighty ruler of heaven and earth. He is the holy sovereign judge of it all. That's all that matters, right? That day is coming. Could come any day like we said last week. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, Joel proclaims, in verse 16, and that was almost 3,000 years ago. God has been roaring against the nations for that long, and yet today, the nations of this world continue to ignore his sovereign voice. Today, the nations of the world, including our nation, this one nation under God, continues to suppress his truth in defense of, of unrighteousness, continues to call good evil, continues to call evil good, continues to slander God in his word, continues to not only do the things that God forbids, but to give hearty approval to those who practice them, as Paul says in Romans 1, verse 32. His sovereign vengeance is coming. It's already here in, in various ways. It's already being expressed in our world. That's the whole meaning, by the way, of the book of Revelation. The seals and the bowls and the trumpets in that book all reveal the present and ongoing and escalating judgments of God in this world, which are, in Jesus' words, birth pangs, Matthew 24, 
signaling the ultimate judgment that is to come. And we've already seen in Joel, all those things are intended to be alarms to wake people up in this dark and doomed world, to call them to repent and turn to God and to rouse all of us who have been graciously and mercifully saved by the outpouring of God's Spirit to call us into action to stand firm for the truth in all of the power and authority of God, to stand against the lies of this crooked and perverse generation, to shine the light of the gospel into the spiritual darkness of this world and to redeem the time because these days are evil and the day of the Lord draws nearer and nearer every single day. Jesus said in Matthew 24, and he said it 2,000 years ago, he said no one knows, not even the angels of heaven know, not even he himself during his time on this earth. Only the Father in heaven knew when the day of the Lord would come when the Son of God would return on that white horse and lead all of heaven's warriors to make war against the nations and pour out the fullness of God's wrath. No one knows that day that God has fixed to judge the whole world or when it will come. All we know, and we know it for certain, is that it is coming. And what we know, and and this brings us to the final emphasis here in the book of Joel, This is God's parting note, and it's a sweet one. Every single day until that day is a day of refuge. Joel ends not with the vengeance that is sure, but with vindication. Not with a word of destruction, but with a word of deliverance. Before God comes to destroy, he is pouring out his spirit in order to deliver. The Lord roars from Zion in his judgment against the sinful nations. And right now, the heavens and the earth are quaking because of his roaring voice. Every trial, every tribulation, all the suffering, all every sorrow, every war, every rumor of war, every famine and earthquake and pestilence, it's a birth pang. It's a, it, it, it's a groaning noise that this world that's cursed with sin makes as it longs for redemption. And every day before this coming day of the Lord is a day of refuge when deliverance can be found in him. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But, verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. I lo- Don't you love how God never just says, that he will provide a refuge for his people, that he will secure some stronghold for them to be sheltered in. He doesn't just say that, right? He says he is the refuge. He is the shelter. He is the stronghold. In Joel's day, when, when the locusts came, there was no place to hide from them. Right? Remember the, the destruction that these locusts wrought? It, they were literally, they were everywhere, right? They ate everything. They chewed through the barn doors. They shoved themselves through the cracks in the walls. They forced themselves even through, through chips in the mortar and, and invaded houses. 
There was no way, there was no earthly place to escape from them. There was no, nowhere to go to find refuge or shelter from that plague. But God says, you can come and find refuge in me. In gathering together and crying out and calling upon his name and putting their trust in him, anchoring their hope, devoting themselves wholly to him, seeking him who is the maker of heaven and earth. That's the only hope. That's the only way to find refuge. And he's commuting the same thing, communicating the same thing here in an eternal sense. When Jesus returns, when all of the heavenly angels return, <laughs> there's going to be nowhere to hide. There's going to be no earthly thing that you could find to escape it. No shelter, no refuge where they cannot get to you. Only in God, only in Christ. This is what God is calling his people to ultimately in the book of Joel, and that includes us. Right Again, not just that one earthly physical nation of God's chosen people in the Old Covenant. Ultimately, God is talking about his truest nation of chosen people in the New Covenant. If you find refuge in God through faith in Christ, you are Abraham's children. You are heirs according to the promise. You are God's holy nation, and he will shelter you from his judgment. And by his grace alone, that's what we are. Through faith in Christ alone, that's what we are. The promised seed of Abraham. The ones who God will protect called out of spiritual darkness, called out of the unbelieving nations of this world and into the marvelous light of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, we know He is our rock. He doesn't give us a rock to hide under. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our shelter. And He's not just our shelter from the storms and the trials and the tribulations that we suffer from and endure during our lives in this world. Right? That's not your greatest hope. That he's either going to protect you from earthly trouble or, or even that he's going to be with you in earthly. He is, but that's not your greatest hope. Jesus is with us in every fiery trial. Jesus walks with us through all of the deep waters. But his presence with us in those circumstances to help us endure them as good as that is that is not our greatest need and the hope that he might remove earthly trials from us is not the true good news of the gospel the ultimate call is to find refuge in him and in him alone from the wrath of God that is to come against the whole world in the valley of God's judgment in the valley of his sovereign verdict, which will be proclaimed and is being proclaimed against this whole world. And that is what we need to be calling others to. There's no other shelter, there's no other refuge, there's no other hope but Christ alone. On that day when he returns, there will be vengeance poured out by God. There will be desolation, as he speaks of in the concluding verses of this book. Eternal destruction for everyone who has shaken their fist at God, for everyone who has treated their own lives as their own instead of serving and honoring Him. But Jesus came and endured the cross 
Again, not to deliver people from the trials of this world, but from the wrath of God that is to come. And so our call is to proclaim Him as the refuge that is desperately needed because the wrath of God is coming. Our call is to bear up any cross necessary and not be cowards who hide and who keep the light of the gospel hidden so that we might not suffer the scorn of the world, the mocking of the world, the shame of the world, the persecution, even our martyrdom of the world. But that we might throw ourselves at any cost into the service of proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the only refuge from the wrath of God that is to come. So pray with me this morning that God will continue to give us courage, that God will continue to make us faithful, that God will continue to sanctify us and make us holy and useful to Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, thank You for this great book of prophecy in Your Word. And thank You for, Father, frankly, the terrifying message that it proclaims of the coming day of the Lord when all of the wrath of God will be poured out. And thank You, Father, for the great message of redemption that it also proclaims that You, the very God of vengeance, are also the God of hope, are also the God of mercy, that You are the rock, that You are the refuge, that You are the shelter. And Father, we thank You for saving us in Jesus Christ and delivering us from this wrath that is to come. And so would You help us, Father, to continue to be faithful, to run with endurance, to not just persevere through the trials and the sufferings of this world, but to bear up our crosses, Father, in following Christ and calling the nations to find refuge in Him. This we pray for the sake of your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.